We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You are listening to That's What I Call Science. Hello and welcome to another weekly episode where we're bringing you big ideas from the small island of Tasmania. As always, our show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So go to edgeradio.org.au for more information on what those good people are getting up to. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host, Mibu Fisher, today. And I'd like to begin our episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording, the Pakana and Palawa people, as we record on Lutruwita and acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on where you are listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay respects to elders past and present. So before we get into the nitty-gritty of today's episode, I want to point out that we are living in strange times, so we are recording outside. You may hear some background noises, some birds, some traffic, and that's just because based on all of the evidence available to us, we thought it was best to record outside without masks rather than inside being all muffled. So I hope you appreciate that, listeners. Today we'll be talking about the Earth and its movements over time and how it relates to past and future climates with our expert guest, Professor Matt King from the University of Tasmania. So Mibu, can you tell us a little bit more about our guest today? Matt is a professor of polar geodesy and the director of the Australian Centre of Excellence for Antarctic Science. And he's mostly been focusing on how much Antarctica contributes to sea level and changes to the Earth's shapes after events such as earthquakes. Um, also, in 2021, um, Matt received the Premier's Tasmanian Researcher of the Year Award at the Tasmanian STEM Excellence Awards as a recognition of the impact of his work. So, welcome to the show, Matt. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to hearing about your area of research because it's not one I really knew existed, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, for our listeners, can you please give us like a summary of what you do? The first thing to say that as a, a professor of polar geodesy, it's a title I entirely made up and I'm the only one in the world. Um, so it's one way of becoming unique is to just make up something that, you know, no one no one else is, but also no one else understands. So, so I always start with this conversation about what, well, what is geodesy and then polar geodesy. So geodesy is, is an old science. Um, it's about the study of the shape of the earth and its gravity field and rotation. So, so back in the day in the 18th century when they were trying to work out if the earth was a squished ball from the top down or from the sideways in, they were doing geodesy. Today, we do geodesy with satellites, um, observations to the stars uh, from radio telescopes, and we're interested in how the Earth changes with shape over time, how the Earth's gravity changes with time, and how the Earth's rotation changes with time. Um, and those things change with time because of things going on on the surface of the Earth, within the Earth itself, and even external forces as well. So would you expect, like, really minuscule changes or like quite big changes over time. And do those changes actually impact anything that we would experience in terms of like our climate or like the experience we have on the surface of the earth? Yeah, so so look, you can think of the big changes like, you know, an earthquake occurs and obviously near an earthquake things move, you know, sometimes up to, to 10 or 20 metres in a really big earthquake. Um, and so you don't necessarily need really precise millimetre level measurements to understand that. But further away from an earthquake, it gets down to millimetres uh, very quickly. And so if you're going to understand something about the earth itself from that, then you need very careful measurements. And that's where you get down to the millimetre level. So the earthquake's one example. But to think of things that are going on the surface of the earth, so climate change is driving uh, melting of the Greenland ice sheet, for instance. As all of that weight of Greenland ice goes into the ocean, 
and gets distributed around the global oceans, well, Earth's rotation axis is changing. And you can measure that at the level of a few centimetres per year. Well, you can measure that much more precisely than that, but that's actually how it's changing, a few centimetres a year. So, so humans, through driving uh, climate change, melting the ice sheet, are actually moving the Earth's rotation axis at a magnitude that you could measure with a ruler if you were standing outside the Earth <laughs> um, and then there was actually a physical pole to, to measure. Yeah, right. So in terms of like the rotation axis, yep. does that literally determine the way Earth spins? Yeah, that's right. So so it's spinning on an axis and it's spinning around that and uh, its axis is d- set by basically the distribution of mass on the Earth and within the Earth. Yeah. So if you move mass around, then Earth's axis rotates or shifts a little bit. With that, like over time, the more and more that axis moves because how the Earth spins is like how we understand days, seasons. So that could theoretically, over time with enough of a shift, literally change the timing of seasons like yeah, yeah. really I, I mean i guess you, you could that would be an extreme event certainly earth's the length of the day and so the speed at which the earth rotates is also affected by things that are going yeah, right. on the surface of the earth and so that's that's sort of changing by fractions of milliseconds but nonetheless you can detect you know a, a sort of a large scale climate signal associated with that the large-scale um, pattern of uh, changes in shape of the Earth happen from all the way down to sort of the earthquakes we talked about, um, the tides themselves, the gravitational attraction of the sun and the moon, pull the Earth, uh, and it goes in and out. It sort of breathes in and out a couple of times a day by yeah, 30, right. 30 centimetres at the equator. And so, so that, you know, obviously, if you're standing on it, you don't feel that. <laughs> um, uh, but with GPS precise GPS measurements, you can measure that. Um, or the other way of thinking about it, if you want really precise measurements to measure something else, then you have to correct for that mm-hmm. um, signal. Otherwise, it gets it adds to the noise and, and it gets in the way of the measurements you're trying to make, which might be about the very long-term motion of the Earth and how it's changing with time. Yeah, wow. right. That's fascinating. Never occurred to me. So it seems like we we'd kind of thought about asking you, like, why is it important to understand and how does it influence our daily lives? But you've really covered that quite nicely. I've never, I really love that uh, analogy of the earth breathing. Like, it's really easy to visualize. Mm-hmm. How did you find yourself meandering into this area? Because... I mean, I've li- literally not before deciding to talk to you ever thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Look, and to be honest, I'd never thought of it. Um, uh, I, I studied surveying at, at the University of Tasmania. Uh, and I studied surveying because uh, about three weeks before I had to put my form in to uh, go to uni, someone said, oh, have you thought about doing surveying? <laughs> um, and, uh, and to be honest, I hadn't. Um, and surveying, of course, means one thing to a bunch of people. It's people standing by the side of the roads helping build things or subdivisions of property. But in the la- in the higher years of, of surveying, you start to do satellite-based positioning and start thinking about measuring things precisely and dealing with er- you know errors in measurement and how you account for those. And uh, one of my lecturers, uh, Pr- Professor Richard Coleman, who's just retired from the university, and he, uh, he, he really grabbed my attention with some of the work that he was doing about very precise measurements of things on the earth um, uh, or, or the earth itself. And so I went from, from that to, to do um, honours and then a PhD. And my PhD was on the changing motion of a pe- large piece of ice in Antarctica. Uh, and so that started my journey from measuring things precisely to measuring things that are changing on the earth and, um, and sort of the interaction of climate and the earth. So I went from that to then uh, measuring how the whole ice sheet has changed over um, the last few decades. Uh, and then I went from that to measuring how um, the Earth beneath Antarctica was changing shape as the ice melted and went into the ocean. 
um, and what we can learn about the interior of the Earth down to a few hundred kilometres below the surface from that sort of natural experiment. And then I've done some other things along the way in terms of the, the tidal deformation of the Earth and um, earthquake deformations, all of them trying to get an understanding of what the Earth's like beneath our feet. Okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what is the importance of understanding what is underneath our feet? Mm. Like, Yeah, so, so so there's two things. One of them is just a fundamental discovery. Like, you know, the, the humans have, di- have drilled a hole that uh, the deepest hole humans have uh, drilled is about 12 or 15 kilometres deep into the Earth. The Earth's radius from the surface to the core is about 6,370 kilometres. Yeah, right. So, so we're down at the less than 1% level in terms of how much we've directly accessed. Everything else we know is done on the surface of the Earth. So everything we know about the Earth that we live on, all 7 point whatever billion of us, Everything is known from measurements inferred from the surface, whether it's seismology or geology. But geodesy offers some new insights about the way the Earth behaves over seconds to decades and thousands of years. Seismology tells us what like the Earth is like over fractions of a second. It likes it over the timescales of earthquakes. Uh, geology can tell us about what happens over millions of years, billions of years. Uh, geodesy sits, sits at the sweet spot in the middle where, 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 in which things that matter to humans, you know, we, we live on the time scales of minutes to decades to centuries um, and geodesy is observing how the earth is behaving over that time scale. And so there's a fundamental discovery piece but also it turns out that satellite measurements of Antarctica or Greenland that look to measure how much ice Antarctica is losing or Greenland's losing and going into the ocean and driving up sea level. If we want to measure those accurately, well, some of those measurements require us to know what's going on in terms of inside the Earth as well. Otherwise, we get uh, erroneous answers. And just to give you a bit more detail around that, there's a tremendous satellite mission called the, the GRACE satellite mission. It's the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment. It measures Earth's gravity field and how that changes over time so people would be used to hearing about you know 9.81 meters per second per second from high school yeah and so that's the that's gravity well that uh, at about the sixth decimal place that number's changing quite a lot depending on where you are on the surface of the earth and it also changes as ice melts in antarctica and goes into the ocean so as you move mass around gravity is changing uh, and so if you can measure that from space, then you can, you can actually get to well, how much mass is moving from Antarctica into the oceans. Um, and so it's a different way of measuring uh, the contribution of Antarctica to sea level. But that GRACE satellite mission measures just the gravity field. It doesn't know if it's ice or if it's mass inside the Earth or if indeed it's ocean mass uh, or hydrology. So you have to get all rid of all these other signals, signals in the ocean, on the land... Uh, in the Earth in order to get an accurate estimate of uh, Antarctica's contribution to sea level. So that's why, so I started off with trying to figure out, well, how is Antarctica changing? Then I've had to go on a detour, and you said meander before, and I think that's right. Uh, I had to meander via the solid Earth itself in order to understand what that's like in order for us to improve those other estimates. So there's the fundamental discovery. What is the Earth like that we live on? Uh, but then there was also the practical application. How much is Antarctica contributing to sea level? And so really you need to adjust for as many of the factors on the Earth's surface or as many as the constants we could think about that are changing less rapidly yep. to get an accurate indication of that. One question I have is more about your experience. Mm. 
you're using a lot of satellite data, GPS data. Do you ever actually get to go to the places where you're exploring or use like real world samples, you know, where they drill down? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so look, I went to the Antarctica for four months when, during my PhD and flew around in helicopters and did some great exciting stuff, camped out in the deep field, slept in a tent at minus 23. Yeah, and, right, wow. You know, sort of... Uh, had had a great experience and collected important data. It wasn't a it wasn't a holiday, um, uh, but it was really useful. Since then, I haven't been back to Antarctica, but I've I've had people teams of people in the field most years since um, since the mid two thousands um, doing field work for me. Part that's just for family uh, reasons. It's, you know, four months is a long time to go away, or three months to go away from people. I have had a chance to go to Greenland and Iceland as well, and Alaska, <laughs> mainly for conferences. You perhaps wouldn't believe that I went to uh, Greenland for a conference, <laughs> but uh, I did. And so, look, I, yeah, I've had I've had some tremendous experiences along the way through science. It's not all give. There's some fantastic returns and not just in terms of those experiences but working with great people as well yeah awesome so does um like physical specimens or samples play a part and like the field work data observations play a part as well as those satellite observations so, in your work so so i tend to work m- mostly with gps data so so and by that and people are familiar with gps in their their, their phones telling them their position to 10 metres or something like that and, um, you know, it's in scooters going driving around Hobart, <laughs> and, you know, uh, erroneously telling you you've gone off track when you haven't and all that sort of thing. So people are used to that sort of sense. We do precise GPS where we're measuring sort of millimetre level position um, and to do that you need to have GPS permanently, a GPS antenna permanently bolted to the bedrock somewhere uh, or sitting on the ice for you know years generally uh, sometimes decades if you're trying to measure very small signals like you are when you're trying to measure how the earth is moving the solid earth is moving so we have gps sprinkled around antarctica that are bolted to the bedrock and these rock outcrops that poke up through the ice in different places you know one of the challenges we have is is keeping them powered and 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 running uh, right through the year for year after year after year after year so that we can actually track the motion of the bedrock and see how it might be changing with time as well um so so that's the sort of nearest thing to samples we obviously use information from other people about um uh from 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 seismology a bit from geology about the the, the their inferences of what the inter- interior of the earth is like um, but our samples are the data, um, and our field work is deploying and retrieving the, the data from GPS receivers. Awesome. Thanks so much, Matt. Stick with us for just a moment. We're going to be talking to Matt about the highlights of his career and the advice he has for younger people setting out on their scientific journey. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are talking with Tasmanian Researcher of the Year, Matt King from New Taz. My name is Mibu Fisher, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman. Um, so, Matt, is there a particular aspect of your work or findings that you're particularly proud of or that has surprised you in your career so far? Oh, look, my, my whole career is a surprise, to be honest. Um, <laughs> you know, when you start off... T- doing a surveying degree with no understanding of, you know, Antarctica. I don't even think, growing up in Tasmania, I don't even think I thought really about Antarctica at all. Uh, it just didn't it didn't uh, breach my consciousness until I was given an opportunity to do a PhD on it. It surprised me that I've had a chance to work with some of the, some of the best scientists in the world in, in sort of the broad climate science area, you know, that 
by having developing a skill of my own, which was about um, you know precise positioning and um, um, precise measurements of the Earth or, or precise measurements of glaciers, um, then well, glaciologists wanted to work with me, and some of the you know people who are really very famous wanted to work with me very early on in my career. And since then, I've had a chance to continue to work with some really outstanding uh, colleagues. Some of them senior, some of them actually just starting off in their research careers. Um, and all of that's been a, a real delight. I've had the privilege of working uh, almost entirely, entirely, I'd say, with people who are great to work with. Um, and so um, that's been a real joy as well. Yeah, very lucky mm. by the sounds of it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think that's luck, though. You say, you know, a lot of the most world-renowned signers are seeking you out. That's something that's quite rare. And generally, you've done oh, something yeah. to do that. So, like, how do you think early on that you created this shape for yourself so early because you were actually made professor relatively junior in your career compared to many other people and uh, looking at that trajectory sometimes as a junior scientist it can seem quite overwhelming just to try and make decisions to navigate that path and who to work with and when to work with them and yeah just unpacking that a bit more to think yeah about yeah I think I think there's something about being a good collaborator for other people so you know um so so I, I think I whether I consciously or not tried to be that good collaborator so if someone wanted something from me that added something to their study I'd try and turn that around quickly I wouldn't be the slow the spl- the person who took three months to comment on the paper or you know over promised on the, the delivery of something um, when I knew I couldn't deliver it so I tried to a- a bring something I tried to cross over disciplines and, that, and and other people helped me in that as well but uh, by coming to me but if you've got a um, you can be relatively not the world's best person in a particular field, um, but if you jump over into a into a parallel field and become the expert in that field, you know, for whatever you're doing, that can actually make you, you know, really cause you to skyrocket in terms of your um, your profile and and the types of work that you you're able to to publish, and the types of people you're able to work with. You know, th- th- that that was certainly part of it. I think. Um, Straight after my PhD, I, I moved to the, from Tasmania to the UK, I uh, to to Newcastle in northeast England, and I worked with a great group of people there. Um, but I reckon in probably the first year of that time, I'd learned as much again as I had in my PhD, simply because I moved. Now I know that not everyone can move uh, for life circumstances, but I think there's great value in moving. Um, uh, you know, Tasmania is an incredible place. People often want to just stay. Um, I, I think in terms of um, uh, accelerating the rate at which you can do science, it's good to think about moving uh, if you can. And so, and so that benefited me. I made, I made connections in Europe and the in the, in the US. There's just a level of interconnectedness there and a density of science there that's uh, basically impossible to replicate uh, here in Australia, certainly in, in Tasmania. Um, uh, but that said, when I did return back to Tasmania, I was also comforted by the fact that there are just outstanding scientists here, world leaders here, who haven't actually left. Mm-hmm. Um, so people can't, you can do it, uh, and I think perhaps even easier now than it was in the past, because obviously in the 1970s you had to type a letter and send it <laughs> off in the mail. Um, that's, that's not the challenge that we have anymore uh, in terms of collaborating with people. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's lots of great advice that you just gave yeah. yeah, it sounds like you were kind of ahead of the curveball in a lot of ways with this interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary research. Like you could see really early on that um, the niche skills that you developed and the findings that you had being applicable to 
glacial researchers. How did you go about like spreading out and doing that? Because I, it's something I think as a junior scientist, we're really, it's front of mind to be multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary. How has that shaped the way that you look at research questions or research problems, in particularly for climate change, where there's so many different disciplines required? Yeah, yeah. Look, and I, and I would say that I I think I stumbled into that to begin with. It wasn't like oh, okay, strategic I'm set, mastermind. I'm, I'm setting, I'm setting, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I I stumbled. You know, I stumbled into a PhD. You know, I just sort of followed my nose from one thing to the next, and then some connections started. And then sort of within a few years, I could look back and go, okay, I've now established myself as really you know, one of the preeminent people in this area because I've jumped from this, my main discipline, into another discipline uh, aligned to it. But look, I think I think it's really clear now, and I don't think it's a surprising news for anyone who's done a bit of training in um, science, is that the big questions in science are not single disciplinary. And so just starting with that thinking, okay, so, so um, if I'm going to take on the big questions um, uh, or be part of answering the big questions... One, I'm going to have to be part of teams of people. And two, I'm going to have to be part of uh, groups of people who are working across multiple disciplines. So just even having that sort of mindset right from the start. Because let's face it, working with people in different areas is hard. You've got a sort of a, it's a cross-cultural thing. There's a language difference in terms of the way people treat data or work together. Or, you know, there's sometimes politics in a different area that you're sort of stumbling into that you're not sure about. Uh, but, I, but I think that sense of commitment that actually the big problems in science, and, and if it um, and, and I'm quite strong on thinking that if it's uh, important, it's important for a large number of people. It's not just, imp- you know, you can think about, you know, this is about my career. Well, the work I do is not about my career. You know, if I'm doing it just to advance my career, then I've missed the point because hundreds of millions of people around the world need to know about the impacts of climate change. Uh, and so there's a sense of urgency in that. And so I need to get over myself and the hesitations I might have as a natural introvert to not really want to cross over these boundaries. And that's, that's, that's certainly very natural for me to go, well, I don't know you and it's a bit awkward here. And I've got better at that over time. Just, okay, let's, let's start the conversation with this person I don't know because uh, it's too important, the work we're doing, to let my sort of um, personality get in the way. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It does. Yeah. yeah. So you're also really passionate about, you know, championing young scientists to build their profile or to think about the way that they're communicating their research. How much have you seen like a shift in that? Because I was very surprised that when you mentioned you were an introvert and <laughs> things like that, because I've seen some of your talks in the past that are really like a call to action for young scientists, which I think is really important, obviously, because of the work with Twix and things like that. But it's great to see that across disciplines. How much do you think these kind of new package of skills are really at the fore for scientific training? Yeah, look, I, I think it, it is that I think there is a general obligation to um, to endeavour to communicate what you're doing in some way. Um, uh, the you know, I, I am absolutely a natural introvert. And if I walked into a room of people that I didn't know, I would choose uh, a corner seat. Um, uh, and, you know, I wouldn't be high-fiving people, you know, all that sort of, you know, <laughs> I, I just wouldn't, it would feel awkward to me. Um, so I have to work against that. And so I've learned over time to um, to develop skills in communication, um, to develop skills in promoting research, recognising um the opportunity provided by social media, especially Twitter, um, for, for early career academics um, in, you know, you might be in one of the most remote research intensive universities in the world, but you're 
um, th- through the power of social media, it, you com- it's completely democratised in the sense that you're able to promote your research just as well as anyone else. Um, and you're able to get access to senior people uh, and all those sorts of things. Um, and so I just think it's super important that we engage with this um, and that early career researchers at least think about that and make a conscious decision uh, about it. You know, I th- I, you can spend 24 hours on a plane going to a conference um, you could spend, um, you know, 24 hours even over the course of a year on social media sort of engaging with science generally um, and you'd probably get more benefit out of that social media engagement than you would perhaps over out of the conference. Yeah, I really like that as a tip and also on being self-aware enough on maybe where you sit on the spectrum of being like, well, what do I actually need to develop? Yes. And then seeking out that training and those opportunities to develop to improve that to maybe go beyond your comfort zone. Yeah, so like I would say that would be a barrier that you overcome but also interested um, in terms of being interested in communication um, if you did come up against any I guess negativity ne- negativity, <laughs> yeah. negativity. Take the beginning because yeah. I feel like now it's really now it's kind of commonplace but I imagine like a few years ago Twitter was seen as a waste of time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and look, I certainly saw that. I probably was already relatively senior by the time I got onto Twitter. So I think I was on Twitter in 2014 or something like that. Um, And so um, I didn't feel like it was one of those um, things I needed to push into my CV on a regular basis. Um, uh, And let's face it, you know, two and a half thousand followers isn't very impressive um, in terms of the, you know, the... um, mega followed people um uh so but but i do, but but even now i still do mention that you know i pr- promote my work through social media and uh, i think it has become seen as a good and normal thing um but i agree early on you know if you're an early career researcher some of the older people might have said you know you're wasting your time yeah i just think that's gone away now yeah mm. awesome any other final words of wisdom or pieces of advice that you'd like to offer before we wrap up the show I think it's been you've been very generous with your advice and really applied things that people can implement yeah I just think you know it's good science and I look and I and I I didn't do this from the beginning but good science starts with the good questions um, that you ask and so being exposed to things that are going on um, in your own discipline across the world but also outside your discipline uh, expose yourself to those things so that you can be thinking about those larger scale multidisciplinary pro- disciplinary problems right from the start. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content from Tasmania and hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please remember that you can get in touch with us across all major social media channels. So we've got Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also find us wherever you'd like to get your podcast. Until next time, my name's Neve Chapman. I'd like to thank my co-host, Mibu Fisher, and our expert guest, Professor Matt King. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. 
Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.